That song we just sang, testing, there we go. Am I on? Okay, I'm on now. That song we just sang, Ask a Relevant Question. Don't know if you picked it up. While it talks about grace being greater than all our sin, it asks the question, are you willing to receive that grace? That's just not a relevant question for us at the the point or the beginning of our salvation, as we're going to find out this morning. But it's a relevant question each and every day that we live. Are we willing to allow Christ, our Savior, access to transform our lives in ways that he has designed us? I want you to think about that as we journey through our message this morning. For those that are new, we're in a series talking about the authority of Christ. As I said last week, in my opinion, we have a problem with the authority of Christ. And so we need to address it. Last week, we looked at him him as Messiah. And while Israel was looking for a political and economic Jesus, they wanted to overthrow Rome and its oppression. His Messiahship brought a kingdom of God reality. And that is still true today. God wants his church through Christ, through his spirit, to establish the kingdom of God in this world until we see him face to face. Amen? Now, if I'm correct, and I'm willing to admit that I'm wrong, I could be Let me just check this. There we go. I'm back on again. Sometimes that happens. If I'm correct that we have an issue with the authority of Christ, several things transpire. One is that in what I call church world, in Christendom, we have this lack of humility. Rather than bowing our knee to Christ and be willing to serve as he calls us, we just end up arguing with everybody else because we're right and they're wrong. If I'm correct, there's not only a lack of humility, we become full of ourselves, full of pride. If I'm correct, we become more vested in opinions than truth. And so it's easy for then church to become, we're going to find people who agree with us. And instead of bowing our knees to Christ the Messiah, we become mini messiahs, little gods to ourselves. And here's what happens. Paul calls this immaturity. He addressed the problem with the Corinth church just soon after, you know, the first century church was established. And he's talking to them in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, you know, guys, do you understand? I can't give you the meat of the word because you're childish. You're filled with childish emotions like jealousy and strife. And you run after people. You sit there and say, well, you know what? Paul's the best speaker we got. And other people say, no, 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 Apollos is. And he says, you're a bunch of babies. Now, you know and I know babies are cute when they're supposed to be babies. We call them childlike. But when a 20-year-old or a 40-year-old or a 60-year-old acts childlike, we call that childish. And when we have a childish mindset and we live this way... Here's what I've discovered happens, at least in my life. Maybe it's not true for your life, but in my life, when I get this immature, childish mindset, number one, I go in every situation and I find something wrong. 
That's not right. That's not right. That, well, you know, if those people were. Second thing I do is I always prove myself right. You know, my job is to convince everybody else that I'm right and they're wrong. And number three, if I can't prove them right, and if I find everything wrong, then I throw a tantrum. And by the way, adult tantrums aren't very pretty, are they? In fact, they usually turn violent. I know, at least in pastor's world, there's many pastors that say things like this. Well, you know, if only so-and-so would lead the church. And I know pastoral friends that have actually gone up to people and say, listen, why don't you just go? That really dishonors the fact that they were made in the image of God. So I don't know how you display your childish mindset. I look back at my life and those are things that happen. But here's what I want us to think about this morning. You know, I don't think we fully appreciate the scandal of Christ as Savior. We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke. You can turn there a while. And in fact, we're going to be looking at Luke 19. You can turn to that chapter. But in verse 7, one of the key verses, and when they saw it, the situation we're about to look into, they grumbled. See the childish mindset? You know, he's wrong. They're right. And they try to prove themselves right. They don't get their way. So they throw a fit and they try to crucify him. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, the first question you have to ask is, how do we define sinner? In their day, they had their lists. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had long lists of do's and don'ts. And when we become mini messiahs, we like to police other people's behaviors, don't we? Well, they shouldn't do that. I can't believe they're a follower of Jesus. And they said those things. I read a cute little blog this past week where someone was commenting on how Christians are always commenting on Facebook about other people's opinions. And he called them the Pharisees of Facebook. I thought, ooh, ouch. But you know, he's right. The need to correct other people according to my opinions. And of course, they had their categories. And we have our categories. And yet we love to affirm scripture. And how many Christians have you heard say this? We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then you look at them and say, okay, so what sin did you struggle with this week? And they go, uh, uh. See, we like to talk about sin in general terms and not specific. I mean, for instance, do we have a list for the sin of prayerlessness? Do we have a a list for the sin of the lack of grace? We sang about grace or the lack of generosity. How about the sin of being offended? Where somebody says something we don't like and we hang on to it, we nurture it, we cherish it, and it affects our minds and our emotions. You know, Jesus preaching one time came along and said this in Luke 7, 23. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The word offended in that passage is the word scandalon or scandal. Remember I said we don't fully appreciate the scandal of Christ as Savior? I mean, people were scandalized. They were offended by the truth of what he was saying. What about the sin of attitudes we possess? Now, I know none of you ever do this, so this is kind of on me. You ever make assumptions about other people's intentions? 
And we say things like, you know, I, I know what you're thinking. And I know why you did what you did. I got news for you. Unless you're Jesus, you cannot look at a person's heart. I heard one amen. <laughs> but we do it all the time, don't we? So the question of the definition of sin, how we define sin is how we handle and how we handle sin is critical to our understanding in the authority of Christ as Savior. Do you understand that? Because how you define this is going to be how you define Christ as Savior. Take a scene in the Corinth church. They say, look how loving we are. Look how nice and gracious and wonderful. We just accept this person and their sin. We don't say anything. And it was a very specific, horrific sin. And Paul comes along and says, listen, guys, you're arrogant. You're not defining and you're not dealing with the situation. Because if you have a proper understanding of sin, you know it needs to be eradicated. And the only person to eradicate it is who? It's Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves the question, why do we need a Savior? And when you combine these two questions, we should take sin very seriously. Because God, through Jesus Christ, leaving his spirit here, paid a massive cost for sin. And if we take sin lightly, we make light of him as Savior. Now, I made a statement last week. If you do not know Scripture, then you do not know Christ. It's why investing in the Bible is so critical, because it's there that we understand about sin, and we understand this Savior stuff. Now I want to put a quote on the board, and I'll apologize because I don't know who said this. It's one of those things I have written, and it's in my little note thing that I keep, but I didn't have the person who said this. So these are not my words or somebody else's if you run across them. Christianity never begins with what we do for God. It always starts with God, what God has done for us, the great and wondrous things that God dreamed of and achieved for us in Christ. Now, I want you to reflect upon that because I always talk about starting points are critical. This is where we start with Christ as Savior. It's what he has done for us, not what we do for him. Now, think about this in context. I'm going to give another quote in a moment, but I want to give you the context of the quote. I read a book on vacation, and the book started out this way. I'm Brennan. I'm an alcoholic. How I got there, why I left, why I went back is the story of my life. And then he went through a series of life choices saying the same kind of thing. But at the very end, he said this in his introduction. I'm Brennan. I'm a savior. I'm a sinner. Saved by grace. That is the larger and more important story. Only God in his fury knows the whole of it. And the word fury, he's quoting G.K. Chesterton, who talks about the furious love of God. Now, listen to his quote then in this book. I put it on the screen so you can follow with me. He writes, how is it then that we've come to imagine that Christianity consists primarily of what we do for God? How has this become the good news of Jesus? Is the kingdom that he proclaimed to be nothing more than a community of men and women who go to church on Sunday? 
take their annual spiritual retreat, read their Bibles every now and then, vigorously oppose abortion, don't watch X-rated movies, never use vulgar language, smile a lot, hold doors open for people, root for their favorite team and get along with everybody? Is that why Jesus went through the bleak and bloody horror of Calvary? Is that why he emerged in shattering glory from the tomb? Is that why he poured out his spirit on the church? To become nicer men and women with better morals? It's a great thought to think, isn't it? With that in mind, turn to Luke 19. We're going to start at verse 1. And everything I set up to this point, I want you to reflect upon how Jesus encounters this person, Zacchaeus. In verse 1, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see Jesus, who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry. Come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus didn't invite him. He invited himself. It's kind of interesting to say that God invites himself through Jesus into our lives. The question is, do we open the door and let him in? So he hurried, came down, and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the religious leaders, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, behold, Lord. And I'm curious about the conversation before this. But he says, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And then a critical verse here, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So what is salvation? Jesus said salvation has come to this house. He didn't pray that prayer. We didn't see the plan of salvation. But whatever transpired, and let's be clear that we don't know everything that was said in that house, but we see this transformation of Zacchaeus that immediately he gives away a lot of his wealth and he admits sin that he defrauded people and he's going to repay them fourfold. But what is salvation? When you hear salvation, what do you think about? Think about our cultural influence today. We emphasize really two things. One is individual choice. We love the fact that we can choose. And the second thing that we like in our culture, and we live in a celebrity culture, so we like events. And so often in America, salvation then has become an individual choice that you accept, pray, and get relief from hell. It was an event, time and place in your life. You're saved. End of statement. But then we have to wrestle with what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. In fact, the word there, work out, means to keep working out and keep working out. It's present tense with fear and trembling. So what does Paul mean that we keep working out this salvation if we were saved point in time? 
Now, I need to say that there's nothing nice and neat about following Jesus. You understand that, right? He messes with everything in your life. Let's take Zacchaeus. Now, we do know this, that Zacchaeus did not go through 12 membership classes. Okay? Didn't join a local synagogue. There was no mentoring at this point. And yet, whatever transpired in this conversation with Jesus, he gives a half of everything he had away. And he pays back four times those he cheated. And there has to be a mission of sin there. I think one of the things that concerns me today as we talk about evangelism and discipleship is if they are two separate events. In Matthew, Jesus says, go and make disciples. He doesn't say go and evangelize and make disciples. And so often in our culture, because of this whole individualism and event thing, we've separated two things that we shouldn't separate. Let me give an example of how this plays out. If you study revival meetings in America, and some of you were part of those, I know when I first began ministry, the one church I was in, they used to do three weeks of revival meetings in the spring and two in the fall. Bring speakers in, people from the town come in. That's back in the days when there was nothing to do in the town but go to church. But here's what revival meetings did. First, they took evangelism out of the hands of everyone. And they put it into the hands of the professionals. See, we had to wait till the evangelistic services came because of the preacher. And we bring our non-Christian friends because the preacher was going to win them to Jesus. Rather than us having conversations with our non-Christian friends saying, listen, have you ever considered Jesus? The second thing that happened was it was event-driven. I know of people that would wait for the revival to come to accept Jesus because it was so indoctrinated that this is when you do these kinds of things. You know, we had all our calls and everything else. But here's what salvation is. Salvation is the process of transformation of becoming like Christ. Yes, there's a time and place for this to begin. It's where he eradicates our past. He makes us righteous. By eradication, I mean that sin is no longer held against us and we have full access to heaven, to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And number two, he gave us his Holy Spirit. We call that sanctification. Big theological term. You don't need to memorize it or remember it. Just think of it this way. Once you are saved through Christ... Through the Holy Spirit, he makes you more like him each and every day. Which means it's a transformation of both the present and the future. Which means we are all students. That's what one of the definitions of disciple is. We're all students of Christ. We have to realize that salvation is a lifestyle lived out in community. We kind of got to get rid of some of this individualism. It still needs to be there. We make the choice. But we realize that Christ is the head. We are the body. And how many different body parts are there? Well, there's fingers. There's toes. There's hands. There's arms. There's necks. There's torsos. There's legs. There's feet. There's knees. There's a complicated nerve system in there. And we understand physically that we need all those parts to operate well. But inside the church, what so often happens is we do this transformation and then we think everybody should be just like us. They should all be the thumb or they all should be the eyeball or the ear. 
And transformation is always done in community. It's done through the Holy Spirit. And I got bad news this morning. How many people were raised with a little child's story on the little engine that could? Raise your hand. Come on, you can admit it. Remember? I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I know I can. He makes it up over the hill. Bad news is, it's a lie. <laughs> you can't do it. it ta- salvation takes a community effort. Yes, it's a choice we make as individuals, but we do so in the context of the body. So yes, it's an event, but it's also lived out with people, with people who are different than us. Let me give you this example. When you think of a good Christian, okay, good in parentheses, what comes to mind? What qualities, what kind of personality, what do they do, what don't they do, how do they smile, how do they dress? Now, we know that a good Christian is a follower of Jesus. Last week, I I made this statement, but I'm going to read it in context. It's found in Mark chapter 10. And we have the disciples doing the typical thing again. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You see, they still were looking for a political and economic Jesus. They wanted someone to overthrow Rome, and they wanted someone to establish their business world like it's never been before. And when the turn heard it, two were after it. They were indignant and James and John. Why? Because they wish they would have said it. Pretty simple. We get offended at things that we wish we would have done. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But here's the phrase I want you to remember. But it shall not be so among you. See, the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of this world. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Did you think in your mind that a good Christian is someone who's a slave or someone who serves and who serves people, who serves sinners? Because the phrase that we often repeat again is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you think about a friend? Did you think about a good Christian being a friend of sinners? Now, lately on our television and radios, there's been a lot of commercial time about texting and driving, and they call it distracted driving. When I think about sin and I think about Christ, our Savior, I think we become distracted followers of Jesus. When my oldest daughter was 12, I remember taking her to Park City. We just moved back down from Canada, and she needed to shop for an outfit, and I even forget what the it's for, but she needs to shop for it. So we go in, first door in, she sees something she likes, and she goes, well, Dad, I want to look around. Amen. Okay? <laughs> I don't know if she ain't meant that one. So I knew it was going to happen. I could see her eyes. I knew she liked this outfit. I knew that we would end up back here, and two hours later, we ended up back there. Now, she was distracted. Why? Because she had too many choices. And I think about America, and I think about our options for church. We want it our way, 
And this whole arrogance and lack of humility that I spoke about before, it shows up in styles, in programs, in settings. And we're distracted from Christ becoming the center of our attention. And that's tragic. Because all these things should help us. Now I want to illustrate this. I'm going to show you two pictures. Let me show you the first one. Um, this was a worship setting in Africa. In Galucha. You've heard me talk about Galucha before. As we were the first white people they ever saw. So we were an anomaly. We were scary. That is the worship setting. And when they start worship, they always kind of dance around the building first. Now, think about that setting and think about the setting you're in this morning. And if anybody complained about the setting this morning, look at this. Now, here's the second thing. This is the worship leader. I think she was about 16 years old. And the only worship instrument they had in that building was that homemade drum. But you see the seats there? See the logs? They were uncomfortable and they worshiped about three hours. Being a follower of Jesus, we should be able to worship in that setting. Because Christ is the center. And in America, so often we have all these things that keep us away from. And we become childish. And we're distracted away from Christ, our Savior. And there's consequences to being distracted. Bob Roberts Jr., he wrote this quote about the American church. He says, we have grown the largest. By the way, that's false. That's a whole other issue. In America, we think we got the biggest churches. The largest churches in the world are not in America. Do we have some pretty big ones? Yes. But they're not the largest ones. But he writes, we've grown the largest mega churches in Christian history. Only we did not anticipate that fewer people would be attending church today than in the past. That's a true statement. We've gotten distracted from the authority of Christ. We got our eyes on stuff. So I want to ask you this question. Is there a Zacchaeus in your life? And there is, isn't there? Somebody that you've given up on. You've judged incapable of any further good. And for some of you this morning, that Zacchaeus is the person you look at in the mirror every morning. You've labeled yourself. You've given up on yourself. You believe the lies of Satan. He's the father of lies. Zacchaeus need people to be their friends. So is it our intent at GBC to be a friend of sinners? Now, you know what that means. They're going to be sitting next to us. In fact, if we're willing to look in the mirror, we realize that we are sinners saved by grace, and we need friends as well. Are we willing to live and walk with our Zacchaeuses in humility? Are we willing to be more than conquerors? And being more than conquerors means we take on the issues. You know, so often we make people the problem and not the sin. And so we start saying things like this. Well, you know, if so-and-so wasn't here anymore, then we could. That's not true. Because somebody else will just take their place. 
We need to engage in conflict in healthy ways. We need to resolve. Christianity, salvation is about life and wholeness. And again, a critical piece of this passage, I want to remind you is, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. If that is the head of the church, then if we believe that he is the Savior, if we define sin rightly, then what will we be about? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus if he came to seek and save the lost? We sang this morning about how he didn't stay up here in heaven, but he came down here to us. I don't know if we realize the gospel is completely insane and ridiculous unless we believe that he lived, died, and rose again with but one purpose in mind, to make us brand new creations. Christ as Savior is an invitation to be known and to be loved. It's an invitation given by Jesus, by his body, and by his church. So how do we respond? Again, we always have to consider culture because culture influences more than we realize. And it's not that culture is bad, but we have to understand how it moves us away from Jesus. We think about our culture today and think about how people feel entitled and think about the unhealthy conflicts that exist. Inside the church, and it's not so among you, okay? I think there's two responses to being Christ being Savior. If we really believe that he's the Savior, if we really believe and understand sin and the magnitude of everything. When I think about church and, and everything going on, is this what I'm giving myself to? Is this really what I want to wake up every single day and do? And, and I'll be honest, there's been times in the last four decades that I'd wake up and I'd say to myself, you know, I just want to walk away from this pastor thing. I don't want to give myself to a lot of, I'm going in and out, ain't I? It's a rough morning. And I ask myself this question, is this what Christ gave his life for? And so we got to be gracious people, which means we walk with people. We help people see Jesus. We become like him. We live in humility and service to Jesus. We keep our eyes on the author and finish of our faith. I mean, being a gracious people, we understand the graciousness of God through Jesus, through him being. It's when we minimize that, that we minimize our being friend of sinners. Number two, we got to be a generous people. And by generosity, I'm talking about the DNA. Yes, it's about stuff and money, but that's all. Generosity extends to our attitude, our actions, our words, our vision. Now, I got to be honest, I know some people who are generous with their opinions and observations. (laughs) I want you to think about this phrase it is not so among you. I think sometimes we're generous with our silence. We sit, we listen, we pray, we weep. And see, our goal is not to convince people that we're right. Our goal is to help them see Jesus. Amen? By the way, if you want to talk about generosity, I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. I'll close with this. Finally, brothers, 
whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. Remember, he's writing this in the and taxation existed, they guess, uh, well over 50%. So it was an oppressive time to live politically, economically. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you, yes, that's individual, but it's also group. He's writing to the church. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and keep on practicing. The implication is that it just doesn't come naturally. We've got to practice. We have to train. I think train's a really good word to put in there. And as a consequence, if we think about these things, if we practice these things, If in our DNA is generosity and grace because we understand Christ as Savior, it says the God of peace will be with you. You want to know why a lot of people don't live in peace? It's because they don't understand Christ as Savior. They don't understand their own sin. They don't understand what God can do in them and through them and for them. They still consider themselves either a Pharisee or Zacchaeus. And both those situations aren't good because one grumbles and the other excludes. So I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close with a song. As they do that, I simply want to ask anyone here this morning. And our tradition is normally if, if I extend this invitation for you to accept Christ as your Savior... You simply stand and we bring someone alongside of you and they sit down with you and help you understand this decision and they pray with you. But since we're talking about Christ as Savior, I would be amiss if I didn't ask if there's anyone here that is Zacchaeus, that has climbed a tree, that has looked at Jesus, and Jesus says, listen, I want to come into your house today. That you have the choice to make that. So if you're here this morning and you want to accept Christ as your Savior, just stand up. And this is a very safe place to do that. And we're going to pair somebody up with you and we're going to make this right this morning. So, anyone? We'll just pause for a moment. Pray with me. Father, Thank you. And I pray that as we uh, journey this week, we fix our eyes on you because it's the only way we can see our own sin. And that with other people, Lord, you teach us what it means to walk with them as you walk with us. Yes, it breaks our hearts sometimes. And yes, we want to say things, but in the appropriate time, in the appropriate way, and, and keep us, Lord, from from being those Pharisee people that kind of throw bombs at other people and judge their hearts. It's not good. It's not good for us. It's not good for them. But I pray for all those Zacchaeuses in our life, whether it's us or somebody else, that you give us wisdom on how to navigate because not all of them are willing to come down out of their trees and enter into a house with Jesus. But give us patience and wisdom as we just seek to be Christ to them. Thank you, Lord, that we can be here. Thank you that we can worship you. Thank you for all the stuff that we have that we don't need, but it is a blessing to us. And we celebrate you this morning, Lord.
Because without you, we'd be in a lot of trouble. We pray these things in your name. Amen.